everybody, it's Mark Bennett here from ANZ Agribusiness. Uh, welcome to another edition of our Agri In Focus Insights session. Um, spring of 2023, and uh, as we speak today, it's the 11th of August, so we're not quite into spring, but getting really close and spring is in the air if, um, if you, uh, depending on where you are and um, and uh, catching the right kind of day. But um, it's starting to unfold in front of us and it's a very exciting and, of course, all-important part of the season. Um, they're all important, but maybe no more so than the spring. So um, what is going on in general? Well, uh, we are getting close. So there's a real sense of anticipation, I think, with this spring. Um, a lot of countries, not without a chance, uh, some countries starting to look a bit dry. Um, some countries a little bit too wet. And beyond all of that, of course, we've got the Bureau indicating, um, you know, a really dry period, not quite an official El Nino, but that's got everybody um, interested in where this spring might actually finish up, where will the timing be within all of that. And I think for a lot of country and places, maybe it's only one or two rains and a sort of kind full finish uh, might be enough to still actually have a decent year. So anyway, a lot to speculate on without really knowing. Um, uh, so so the next couple of months will be uh, super critical, but we would love to think that there is enough in system and enough to come through that would still give us a shot at a decent kind of year. Um, the livestock markets seem to be catching up with themselves a little bit. We'll dwell on them in more detail coming up. Uh, obviously, prices are down from where they've been. Um, continued volatility in the grain markets, particularly in the in uh, getting grain out of the Black Sea region, uh, spiking prices, and in fact, you know, grain grains industry still potentially the beneficiary of some of that. Uh, disruption, at least here in Australia, as our crop matures and it will be a good time still to have good grain tonnage coming out the other side of spring and into our summer. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. Um, you know, plentiful water supplies in most irrigation systems around the place um, are really ideal. So I think for a lot of those industries, noting that some commodities are a long way from, from their best, but at least with water, we're a chance of, of production at least, and um, so that stands things in good stead, I think. Um, so really, off the back of what has been a couple of really good seasons for a lot of farming, uh, hopefully a bit of a war chest has developed um, in both inventory, in agronomic stocks, in money, and uh, should it be a bit short this year, um, hopefully we're in a decent position to navigate that and then be thinking about the year after. Um, some places, of course, have been hit with flood and in some of those spots now it's looking dry already, so that would be uh, difficult back-to-back -back for, for some. So we'll watch that really closely as well and, and we're hoping for the best there too. Um, you know, a bit of reporting coming into the market this week, uh, this uh, month around, around uh, rural debt and... Um, again, with that backdrop of a pretty successful farming period, we've now got debt in absolute record territory with farmers in Australia owing 
just under $110 billion. Um, sounds like a lot, and it is a lot in today's interest rate environment as well compared to where that has been. So a really big interest bill coming up. But again, um, a lot of financial health in the system as well. And I think generally speaking, those farming businesses that owe the most tend to be, you know, very well-structured, sophisticated and um, and good at what they do and will be clearly uh, on top of how they would mitigate the, the interest bill that's coming up in and amongst everything else in the way that they're operating and, and managing their businesses. So, again, let's see how the year pans out, whether that brings any pressure or not remains to be seen, but either way you look at it, there's certainly more money going out in interest bill you would think this year compared to the last few years that denies a certain amount of investment and spending that has fueled, I guess, a lot of activity in farming and no more so perhaps than investing in real estate as we've seen, you know, phenomenal price growth in rural real estate really in the last few years. It's matched by profitability and and, and gross value of production in farming, so that's really good. Um, but I think we're seeing a bit of that temper um, and depending on the season, um, you know, interest rates along with cost and season might have a tempering impact on the way those markets perform as well. But underlying a really positive outlook. So with that in mind, um, we will move on to some of the specific commodities just to see what is playing out. And I'll introduce Michael Whitehead uh, to speak to, I think Beef will go with first today, will we, Michael? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Mark. And hello to everybody. Uh, let's absolutely start with beef. Uh, as you say, um, it is a, a, an optimistic time of year, spring. We're all looking forward to the weather getting a bit warmer. Uh, but this year, perhaps more than the last few, there are those question marks over what the rain's going to be. And those are impacting the beef industry, like other agri-sectors, to a reasonable degree. Uh, everybody in the beef industry will be well aware of where prices are. Um, at the moment, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator sitting around those mid-500s marks, uh, Mark, that, that's down about 40% from last year. So that's that's one side of things. And we have argued that beef prices are down possibly further than predicted because of the nervousness about when the rain may come or if the rain may come over spring and what this might mean for feed supplies. So that's one of those things going forward. Arguably, um, there are going to be some big decisions for producers to make, depending on how the rainfall is looking, um, whether they sell, what their feed availability will be, whether they've kept more feed on farm for a lot of larger mixed producers as well. And depending on what happens, that might mean that slaughter rates continue to go up. They're up this uh, at the moment around 20% on last year. Um, but if they go up even further, that could put some dampening on prices. In terms of some of the other factors, possibly the one that's been in the headlines, but in and out, uh, luckily quickly, has been the issue of lumpy skin disease. Indonesia put a ban on live cattle exports from Australia. Um, it was arguably a cautious move, but there's still no sign whatsoever that it's in Australia. And whether it uh, has any uh, major impact going forward remains to be seen, but, but seems to have gone off the boil reasonably quickly. And the Australian industry has, as always, been terrific on keeping an eye and following up on this. 
the big driver of beef prices remains exports. And that's where there is some good news going forward because we really are seeing a big lift in exports over last year uh, based on supply, but also on demand out of some of the big markets. The Americans, for example, their cattle herds at a multi-year low. So we've seen their exports from Australia up 60% this year on last year. Uh, China also up about 35% this year on last year as well. Japan and South Korea, and interestingly, South Korea are Australia's, uh, Asia's biggest beef consumption per capita country. Those markets remain strong. So export markets remaining strong. An interesting one is the UK. Uh, there was some headlines over whether the free trade agreement would bring big beef uh, imports into the UK. They remain small, so a market to be worked on. Looking ahead, the supply forecasts into the market and into processes could be up in the second half and the rest of 2023. So if more cattle are going in, if processes have more capacity, and if there's heavier carcass weights out there, that could mean that it does put that dampening pressure on price. So we'll watch the sky. The export demand remains good. The domestic consumer demand impacted to some point by economics, um, but uh, optimistic going forward. Thank you for that. Um, great wrap. Um, disappointing to have my, uh, prices at the current level compared to where they've been, but let's hope we're around the floor of that with, with upside potential um, season dependent. What about grain, Michael? It's, um, it's probably leading the pack in terms of continuing opportunity uh, off the last couple of years, albeit production probably down, at least prices seem to be in favour. Over to you, to, to Grain, please. Absolutely. And as we say, every agri-commodity depends on the weather, but with different agri-commodities, there is more or less that you can do depending on the weather. And as so many of Australia's fantastic grain producers are uh, looking at the skies and thinking, well, what more can we do depending on how things go from here? And the current weather outlook is mixed across Australia's grain regions. Uh, the rainfall has arguably been good and conditions good across much of Victoria, across much of South Australia, and to a degree, southern New South Wales. Uh, probably bigger dry concerns in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, whereas West Australia, particularly because of its scale, is a bit of a mixed bag. Drier in the north, um, not so bad in the south at the moment. You're absolutely right about prices, uh, that whilst Australia continues to forecast a return to an average season after three good ones, and there are still so many question marks over whether that could go up or down, prices remain reasonably elevated because of some of the uncertainty globally. Yes, prices went to a record highs when Russia went into the Ukraine, then they came back down again, but they're still well above where they were pre-Ukraine and pre-COVID, just because the world wants to be certain about whether grain will keep coming, uh, possible supply chain disruptions as well. What are some of the things that we're seeing out there? Uh, we did see that resumption in issues with trade out of the Black Sea when Russia stopped the 
Black Sea supply agreement when grain was coming out by sea, um, the market reacted slightly, but not too much at all. And possibly that was expected. The market, since the initial Ukraine crisis started, is aware and has watched grain markets closely that a reasonable amount of Ukraine is coming out by land, but also importantly, that there has been uh, relatively good weather in other major northern hemisphere producers. So there is a reasonable amount of grain out there on world markets. So still some volatility, um, but as the rain keeps falling, and particularly in the US where forecasts are getting better, um, keeping things uh, not not uh, sort of too up and down. Uh, one more impact that the dry may have in Australia, if the rain doesn't fall, then as far as healthy Australian exports, we may see some domestic rationing start. Uh, we may see some producers who still have grain in storage on their places or some others uh, look to keep grain back uh, with concerns about a dry and thoughts about a dry and whether there might be a, a great a need for domestic feed grain going forward, um, or whether there might be even higher grain prices going forward as well if the dry continues. So, so those are the major ones impacting wheat. It's um, it, the, the level of inventory held on farm is an interesting one to consider, isn't it? Because after the big crops, you would suspect there's been a bit of grain around, certainly through the June 30 period. And yeah, that strategy against cropping the ground and, and seasonal outlook, but even as well uh, the jump or, or volatility and opportunity that comes with that in grain marketing is interesting. Uh, added to that, I guess China's been a massive buyer of our wheat, um, but looks like they're now back in town for barley. So um, what do you think about the releasing of those um, barriers to trade into China and the impact of barley prices and the overall grains dynamic in Australia. Absolutely. Um, observers of the industry and particularly barley producers will be well aware that in June 2020, China slapped an 80% tariff on Australian barley. Um, China did this as to what China said was in response to grain dumping. Uh, and so that automatically made grain all but prohibitive to export to China from Australia in what had been its largest market. Now, that at the time had a short-term impact. Price went down, planting shifted away. Uh, but Australian barley relatively quickly found new markets and recovered markets across Asia, uh, the Middle East particularly. So as you say, what will happen going forward and, and what has happened already after the announcement? The market has reacted cautiously, but also openly and will do so for China. Um, obviously, Australia is going to take advantage of the opportunities in China and uh, producers, exporters and others will send more barley in there, but are also likely to be cognizant of the risk of any further developments. It's probably going to be best for malting barley. There's been a big demand for Chinese brewers for the quality Australian barley to come back. So there'll be a big demand going in there. But uh, as we've seen China overall um, have increased feed grain imports, we're probably also likely to see a boost for feed barley as well. So in terms of a global basis uh, and in terms of prices, this will uh, almost undoubtedly uh, be a good move for the industry too. 
And you asked about it in terms of how it may impact other crops. Well, the other one we haven't talked about yet is canola as well. And canola producers will be well aware after the great prices they had a couple of years ago and then after things dipped, that prices are heading well back into good territory again. There had been some concerns globally about what uh, canola production would be, particularly with the dry in the Northern Hemisphere and ongoing question marks over Northern Hemisphere production of canola mean that uh, Australian canola prices and export prospects continue to look good. Great. Thank you for that. Good roundup. And it's going to be a fascinating couple of months as we get through the grain districts of, um, of Australia and how the crops are shaping up and what that pricing actually ends up doing. Um, switching pace, maybe, uh, shall we, not a commodity we talk about every single time, but um, if we can go to sugar, uh, I think pricing in that market looks pretty strong. Uh, what are the drivers at play there? Look, sugar is a is a fascinating one, and and once again, it is a it is a great Australian industry. As far as sugar crops go, uh, Australia in 2022-23 is seeing its highest cane crop in about six years, uh, highest uh, processed sugar crop for about five years, and, and the sugar area has been uh, big as well. Sugar is currently in the harvest process, and while other industries in Australia are looking in a lot of ways for a bit more rain, sugar would probably like a little bit less at the moment. The current rains in North Queensland particularly are delaying the harvest. You are absolutely right about the global price at the moment and what it means for the industry. About two years ago, sugar prices were sitting at around that $400 a tonne level. And for many producers, that didn't even cost uh, cover the cost of production too. Um, since then, prices are sitting at around double that, um, which is great news for those who are producing and as or most most of Australia's product happens is exported as well. Why is this happening? Uh, because of poor crops uh, in some of the other major competitors, poor crops in Thailand, poor crops in China, uh, in Brazil, there's been a lot of rain and this also produces in Brazil challenges with logistics in getting the sugar out there as well. So for the time being, with those prices looking high, uh, that it is absolutely good news for sugar producers to lock these in, to take advantage of export markets and to make the most of what is looking like uh, very good conditions at the moment. Great to hear. Thank you. And um, it, it will be interesting to watch the powerhouse of Brazil. Um, and because, I mean, I guess it's, a, I mean, I figure the industry is a little like um, the alcohol market. It, it, it's kind of, it's it's got this base need, but it's, also under a bit of pressure on on health grounds and things like that. So it, it can oscillate. Um, but I think currently um, it's proving to be a really profitable opportunity for our growers. Let's hope they can take advantage of that. Um, switching gear again, maybe going to fibre. Um, our cotton industry, um, fantastic industry. Um, so much is about water um, and there's probably plenty of water still in system. So how are things been travelling and what can we expect coming up as we head into uh, a new season? Absolutely, Mark. I think the cotton industry must be, well, some of them looking at the sugar industry and thinking that people around the world will continue to eat sugar if only people around the world continue to eat cotton, particularly going into uh, challenging global economic times, then things could be a lot more optimistic for the cotton industry. 
In terms of production, there had been some early forecasts that this could have been a record crop this year, uh, but possibly some of the higher than ideal rainfall in some cotton areas brought this down a bit, but uh, still a very large crop, uh, around the, the second largest in Australian history. One of the interesting things with the Australian cotton crop is the way that it's expanding. It has had its traditional areas in New South Wales and in Queensland, but what we're seeing is that in those states and potentially even into Northern Victoria as well, cotton gradually growing further and further out. And this is symptomatic of the changes in the entire Australian cropping system as it is looked upon as a potential alternative crop or as a crop that uh, some producers will give a try to see how it goes going forward. And it wasn't too many years ago that that was the situation with canola. And so we may well see that cotton area that we take for granted gradually expand. And that's not even mentioning the cotton developments in far north Queensland, in Northern Territory and in Northern Western Australia to a degree as well. And when that expands, we'll also see the questions come over whether there will need to be new gin locations as well. So production itself has been good um, and, and that's been good for cotton producers. The challenge is undeniably global consumption and global imports. And this always happens with cotton when there are challenging economic times. Uh, global consumers will pause or reduce what they buy in terms of clothing, what they buy in terms of furnishing, uh, curtains, cushions, anything made out of cotton. Add to the fact that China, uh, who are pivotal in world cotton demand, are just not importing as much as they did in the past. And this is part of global or slowing global demand. Even in terms of stocks, which are such a big impact on prices, global cotton stocks are the fourth highest they have ever been. And if you take China out of that, um, the rest of the world is the second highest it's ever been. There is an awful lot of cotton sitting in storage in world uh, world warehouses uh, before you even take into account exports that have to come out as well. Um, Australia is a major part of world cotton exports, uh, possibly around 20%. So any changes in global trade really does impact producers as well. So that is keeping cotton prices down at the moment. Um, they've been down for uh, global consumption has been down for about three years in a row at the moment. Uh, we will look to optimistic times uh, because economic cycles do inevitably come up in the end. But this is a period that the cotton industry with that impact on price is going to have to ride through. Yeah, interesting one, isn't it? And maybe some of that, um, you know, we've seen phenomenal productivity gain in the industry and that continuation, um, uh, which is also assisted by some of these new landscapes, might be part of that answer until the demand side um, starts to come back our way. Uh, absolutely. Um, so in, in terms of particularly the innovation, um, Efficiency has always been something that the Australian cotton industry has been renowned for. As a relatively young industry, uh, arguably about 60 years old in Australia, as it continues to, whether it's total productivity ratios, other efficiency measures as well, uh, continues to gain. And it is a time like this where the industry will look for how it can continue to improve, even in terms of uh, some of the advances in, in seeds and other genetics as well, to prepare itself better for the, for the future when challenges like this come. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for that. Let's get to the next commodity being dairy. And maybe dairy is a bit like cotton. It's 
perhaps suffering from a bit of demand softness as um, a bit of economic weakness influences uh, some of our key markets and, you know, the longer COVID sort of duration in um, in China might have been impacting that as well, but maybe really good timing in Australia, perhaps in the way opening prices came out on July 1, given that international markets have softened considerably since that time. Um, good news story, I guess, for, for farmers here. Um, maybe not so much for processors, and it's a pretty interesting year or two coming up for the sector, I'd say. Uh, absolutely. Let's start with some of the good news and uh, an unusual event in, in Australian dairy, and that is that Australian uh, milk production has seen a slight rise earlier this year. And uh, basically, the story has been for quite a while in Australian dairy production that, that monthly production year on year has normally been down. But we saw this slight increase. That doesn't take away from the fact that uh, the Australian milk production over 2022-23, sitting at around 8 billion litres, is the lowest amount of milk produced in Australia in almost 30 years. So production continues to come down. As you say, the number of dairy farmers continues to come down, and that presents big questions for dairy processors and for dairy retailers as well as to what they do as this uh, Australian dairy pool continues to shrink. Um, it's going to present challenges going forward. You are absolutely also right about those global dairy prices. They've continued to fall over the last six global dairy trade events, uh, and they're down almost 20% on the five-year average. Uh, China is just really not there in global purchasing at the moment. And with so many agricultural markets being dependent on China, if you don't have China there, then to a degree you've got an oversupply for other, other buyers as well and no great sign that that will push prices up in the near term as well. Will, will China come back? Uh, it probably will to some degree. Will it push prices up rapidly? No, because the uh, return to the market is probably only going to be gradual. So uh, in the longer term, that really does present that issue between those high farm gate prices uh, that uh, have come out for Australian producers and for the lower export prices that processors will be getting uh, for so much of the product going out. Thank you. Yes, of course, like everything else, it's a it's a watch and see. But I guess we do have a strong domestic market underpinning uh, demand in, in the industry, which is uh, more tilted to domestic than most of our other key commodities. So um, maybe that's the good news part of this story as well. Not to mention season and water, of course. Um, if you're carrying plenty of fodder supplies on farm, have decent grass in front of you, um, have water in system to, to irrigate, um, you know, it still looks like a really profitable opportunity for a lot of dairy farmers this year, notwithstanding it uh, can be tough going a lot of the time. And um, and some people have contracts beyond this current season as well. That, that's absolutely right. And let's also remember that uh, a number of producers also have uh, direct relationships with the, the supermarkets too. It, it is interesting to look across the Australian dairy landscape. You're right that while those global prices are down, uh, we are also seeing a, a reasonable amount of relatively large scale dairy operations relatively compared to some of the smaller ones in Australia um, who are absolutely innovatively looking not just to the medium term, but the long term in terms of how they're running their dairy operations, how they can utilize technology, uh, 
different uh, products uh, to take advantage of as well. Um, and, and knowing that uh, perhaps while other parts of the domestic dairy pool shrink, that uh, obviously the demand for what they're putting out will be stronger. So while there are challenges, um, there are a lot of people in the Australian dairy industry who are looking to the future with a lot of good ideas. Indeed, thank you very much. Well, welcome to the microphone, Adelaide Timbrell. Um, always an exciting timing economics. Can you give us an update, please? Yes, absolutely. The good news uh, in the Australian economy right now is that the risk of a hard landing due to you know, these ongoing inflation problems we're having, as well as the really big increase in interest rates of around 400 basis points or four percentage points over the last year, is not necessarily going to create a huge widespread issue in the economy. A hard landing is unlikely. What um, this means, though, is um, because we're not facing a really big increase in the unemployment rate or a really sharp slowdown in economic activity, uh, the risk then is that we may need to say see more interest rate hikes in the future. Our base scenario or our kind of main central case is that we won't have to see any more interest rate hikes from here. But if inflation doesn't quite come down as quickly as we expect based on the rest of the data, the next 12 months, if the Reserve Bank does move, it's very likely to be a move up and very unlikely to be a move down. Now, the reasons, though, that it's more likely to be a move up are positive reasons. You know, we actually don't think the unemployment rate is going to get above 4.6 over the next couple of years. Now, when we remember that the unemployment rate was never below 4 in the years from 1975 to 2021, a 4.6 really isn't that bad. It is around a percentage point higher than the current unemployment rate of 3.5, but it's not a concerning number when we think about the overall health of the economy. We do think that this year will be the slowest year for economic growth of around 0.8% GDP growth, but that's going to jump to 1.8% next year and then 2.4% in 2025. Particularly if the Reserve Bank doesn't have to increase rates any time from here, that's going to be something that really helps the economy to get back to normal without uh, as much of a drag on economic growth. There's always that trade-off where the more we drag down economic growth, the quicker inflation comes back to normal, but also the more pain we have to deal with in the meantime. There is a bit of a mixed global activity picture, uh, and that'll hit our uh, exports a little bit. But we also know that although the Australian dollar weakened um, quite a bit as a result of the Reserve Bank pausing in the last month, we don't really expect much more weakening from here. We're also not expecting from the Australian dollar a really big bounce in value. We think it'll be continuing between that kind of 66 to 70 range through the rest of the year, drifting closer to 70 as we get closer to December. Forward, uh, forward indicators for the labour market show that the labour shortage that we're seeing across many industries is going to be easing um, through the year. So although we don't expect a high unemployment rate, we do expect it to be a little easier to find workers for the average business. And while wage growth is likely to accelerate over the next 12 months, it will only be from the current rate of 3.7% year-on-year to 4.2% year-on-year by mid-2024. After that, we expect wage growth to slow. So wages are not going to be necessarily a really big driver of our inflation problem going forward. And particularly if we continue to see the global activity picture, you know, relatively moderate, 
you know, sometimes bad news is good news in that sense, then that's going to be something that makes our own inflation rate a little bit easier to handle. Thank you. Well, talk sheep today. We have Elena Barrett. Welcome, Elena. The, the sheep people are, well, they've enjoyed a good run, but it's softened lately. Um, let's hear some views, please, on what they can expect uh, in the immediate future. Well, thanks very much, uh, Mark, and hi, everybody. I thought I'd like to start this um, podcast with um, positive for the sheep industry. There's obviously a few um, less than positive stories uh, getting around at the moment, so good to start on a positive note. And as the spring unfolds, um, we can look no further than our sheep meat exports for a positive. So for the year to date, so far, and that's from January through to the end of July this year, we've seen the highest volume of exports of Aussie lamb and mutton on record uh, ever. So in other words, the world has never eaten so much Australian sheep meat, and we think that's a pretty good thing. And I'll talk a little bit about the reasons why now. So first, let's look to those lamb markets. For the year to date, the export data demonstrates growth of um, 36% year on year to our major market of China. This is followed by a 19% uplift in lamb destined for South Korea. So two big growth markets this year when compared to last year in 2022. There's also been really significant growth in sales to the UAE. Um, volumes are up 50%. Um, that one's a much smaller base, but obviously a huge jump there at 50%. So these markets have been particularly beneficial this year as their growth has offset the decline that we've seen in exports um, of lamb to the US. The US has contracted 19% year on year. And we've talked before about the importance of the US market um, in the past. It's such a key high value market for Australian land. Uh, and so we look forward to any news of continued improvement in that US economy. Uh, we'll be closely watching that. And so will the whole lamb industry because um, we saw a slight recovery in exports to the US in July. And so there's certainly hope of better things to come. And that would certainly add some more um, resilience into lamb pricing going forward. So overall for the year, the total lamb exports, looking at all nations, is up around 8% for the year to date. Um, notably, there has been really significant growth outside of those top 10 key export partners that we often talk about. Uh, and we look at the data and we just call this group of nations as a collective other. So these other nations uh, are tracking almost 20% higher year on year. And as a collective group, the other markets behind those top 10 trading partners have actually become our largest lamb export partner by volume month on month since October last year. And that's really significant. We can't ignore that it was the drop in the US exports um, at around the same time that has sort of allowed that trend to emerge. But notwithstanding that, it still has significant positive outcomes for the lamb industry. Firstly, and the, uh, the dominance of any one nation in export trade does represent significant risk. And we've seen that uh, it's been well demonstrated by the recent toils of the barley, wine and rock lobster industries. Um, so building the number of export partners that are purchasing Aussie lamb, along with the volume of those exports, really builds resilience into our pricing. Secondly, we recognise that the growth in exports to these other markets um, have a really strong correlation with the drop in lamb prices that we've seen since around November. Um, but that's also not all bad news. 
having some lamb available at a price that encourages new markets and market breadth across the globe. Um, it might be a source of short-term pain for the producer who's receiving that lower price. But a longer-term view would be that this current high supply and lower price environment actually helps to build a global taste um, for the brand that is Australian lamb and grow that longer-term demand for the product. So definitely some plus sides coming out of the current lower price environment. Uh, and that would include the processes as well, being able to benefit and trade profitably at the moment. If we turn now to mutton markets, um, in recent years, we know they've become less of a byproduct for the farmer and more of a really contributing factor to overall returns from the sheep enterprise. And mutton exports through to the end of July have seen an even more exceptional growth um, than those for lamb. Um, we've got a really mature flock now. We've got surplus ewes entering the market. Um, it's a vastly different story than it was in the early 2020s when the nation was rapidly restocking. Um, so for mutton exports, they're up in total by 53% year to date compared to the last year. And that represents the most Australian mutton ever shipped to key trading partners like China, Malaysia, and also the US coming in there as a key partner. And in the same way as I discussed for lamb, we've seen exceptional growth in the supply of mutton to other nations. Again, those nations outside of our top 10 importers. Um, the growth in these other nations to the end of July was up 38% year on year, also really staggering. And these nations are now collectively Australia's second largest mutton market behind China. Uh, and all the positives there apply as per uh, the lamb industry as well. So just remaining on the export data for another moment, what can't be ignored, unfortunately, is that we did see an overall contraction in exports between June and July, just from month on month. In particular, it was China who experienced a, a drop in both lamb and mutton imports. And some more broad economic data on the health of the Chinese economy does unfortunately confirm that overall China experienced a contraction in all of their goods imports and exports throughout July. And of course, our economists will tell you that this data is one of the demonstrating or key signs of a slowing economy. Um, when we look back to sheep more specifically, the decline was most apparent in mutton as opposed to lamb. Uh, however, you we can also note that historical data suggests reduction, um, a slight reduction in exports in July is not uncommon for this time of year. And on top of that, it also coincided with a significant reduction in mutton slaughter in Australia. Um, it was the same time as we had processing plants out for winter maintenance. And we also have most of our ewe flock at this time of year, um, either with lambs at foot or at the point of lambing. So mutton slaughter did drop back quite significantly in July. The corresponding exports through to China were back, but yet we can't ignore um, what may be a slowing of the Chinese economy. As we move into the spring months, um, the strength of that demand from China and those other key nations we've mentioned, particularly as our surplus views find their way to the market, um, will no doubtably impact on price and we'll watch uh, with interest as that unfolds. If we look now at pricing and we start with the eastern states, we continue to generally see a downward trend. Of course, there's localised fluctuations from week to week and sale yard to sale yard. But uh, with two particularly sharp drops seen over winter, first in June, uh, then following a slight recovery, another in July, we saw all classes of stock impacted. 
Uh, we do, however, continue to see price favour quality and weight. This was particularly the case as the last of the 2022 drop lambs came through to market. And the indicator results show us that uh, the Eastern States heavy and trade lamb indicators um, halved 33 and 34% respectively um, through the winter period, that is. But the restocker lamb indicator, those lighter types of sheep not ready for processing, actually more than halved. So they took a really big hit um, as there was not much demand for them in the market. If we look to the West now, uh, lower prices coming into um, the spring when compared to the eastern states did make the drop seem a bit less stark on a national scale, but it was certainly still experienced. Um, WA's leading indicator through the MLA reported in indicators is their restocker indicator. It dropped 27% through the winter period and the mutton indicator was back 22%. What this has achieved is a spread between eastern states pricing and WA pricing for these lighter sheep closing and probably at the same time it's taken with it any opportunities for transfer of sheep uh, east to west or west to east, so for producers on either side of the country. Uh, and indeed if we look to some data around that interstate transfer we can see that for the season to date and last year as well the transfer of WA sheep across to the east is really the least favoured option for WA producers at the moment. This really spiked throughout sort of the drought restocking period of 1920 and 2021, uh, when we saw those prices for ewes in particular drive a lot higher in the east, uh, but it, since it's returned to sort of less than overall 5% uh, of WA's total sheep offtake. More interesting data out of WA is that the percentage of sheep and lambs being sold through the live export supply chains um, is another major change. Um, it has dropped from around a quarter of all offtake uh, 10 years ago to just under 10% uh, under the current conditions presented by both the market and the regulation um, involved. And of course, we watch with interest as to the outcome of any changes to the trade and we'll be working closely with our customers in the West as they face any challenges that this may bring. Going forward now into the spring, um, conditions for the current lamb drop are okay in many parts, but not so good in others. Um, however, it still suggests there could be a large crop of sucker lambs soon presenting to the market. They have been a little bit slower to hit the market this year than in the past. Export demand in those key high-value mark, uh, markets such as the US over the months ahead will no doubt play a role in the price as with a level of finish of these lambs. Um, it's continued to be likely that lighter and restocker type animals may struggle to find that price support just due to the high overall supply that's expected to continue. Now we know going forward that producers are really conscious of the bomb outlook for the remainder of the year for the spring and summer ahead. We know that in some parts they're already really dry conditions presenting and when we combine this with the global economic uncertainty that I've discussed, unfortunately it does little to support any vast improvement in pricing from current levels in the short term. It probably needs to be stated that the risk of oversupply of sheep and lamb in Australia to a sluggish global economy does exist, um, particularly if a period of dry induced destocking was to occur. 
Um, but we know that sheep production remains really focused in the southern parts of the country, where conditions remain generally okay. Uh, we've got 60% of the national flock in New South Wales and Vic. So it's really a watch on how producers in these parts fare um, in terms of the weather and then what decisions actually start to play out in terms of the economics of feeding, selling, holding, um, whatever the decision may be. We do know that many of our producers are coming off a series of really excellent seasons. There's been significant investment in containment feeding infrastructure, um, and there may be a case of plenty of good fodder on hand on farm as well. So it's probably not unreasonable to think that a slower and more restrained destocking might be possible if it's at all required. Uh, and this would be a good outcome for all in the supply chain. Um, but in saying that, we also know that the economics of drought feeding are likely to be uh, pretty different to the most recent dry that we've experienced just largely due to those lower starting prices. So for our producers this year, it'll be that all-important forward planning, the individual business strategic decision-making, the conversations with advisors, uh, deciding what triggers to pull and when. Um, and no doubt that's all very front of mind for our sheep producers entering this spring. And moving on to the other half of sheep being wool, uh, it's been a stable to, to sort of lower kind of outlook and period for wool. Um, is there any upside in front or is wool still exposed to the broader economic conditions that might temper things for a while? Thanks again, Mark. And we're turning now to our wool markets, which have just recommenced um, in early August following the annual three-week winter recess, uh, which, of course, is through the late July, early August period. Um, and going back to have a look at what happened prior to that, we saw that there had been a period of relatively stable prices in wool through autumn, if not really through the whole of the 22-23 season, particularly when we compare wool to other commodities at least. Um, but what happened through that winter period was the market experienced quite a long run, I think around eight weeks in total of week-on-week -week price corrections. Um, so it was really starting to hurt by the end of that eighth week. And we saw this across all micron categories for the, for the first two months of winter um, to varying degrees. So what played out uh, following this price correction was that growers reacted and they reduced the number of bales on offer just prior to the recess, um, which created a slight supply issue for buyers looking to stock up before the recess. And so in the favour of those who did send their wool in, it contributed to a slight lift in prices over those final two sales. So following all of those fluctuations, what we saw at the close um, of the season before the recess was the EMI closing out at 1,179 cents. That's back 209 cents on the same time last year, so quite significant, around 15%. And the Western indicator, uh, which experienced similar pricing trends through the same time, um, closed out at a more favourable 13.39 cents per kilo, back a slightly lower number, 134 cents on the same time for the prior year. So notwithstanding that drop that we saw over that quite protracted period through the winter, individual prices across the microns, they really continue to demonstrate that it's those 19 to 21 micron types that hold firmest and are attracting the most demand and really demonstrating that they're the most resilient uh, wool types in terms of pricing for some time now. In the spring edition of our upcoming Commodity Insights publication, um, we take a look at the high, low and closing price over the past 12 months of all of the micron categories reported. 
And what we uh, really saw was clear from this exercise is both the range of prices received uh, in terms of that spread between the high and the low and the closing price um, prior to the re winter recess, it really significantly favoured the 19 to 21 micron wools. Uh, and really, it's not surprising then to see so many of our merino producers focusing their breeding efforts on these wool types, as they do continue to perform the best uh, on a pure wool return point of view, at least. Uh, so what's causing this market price pressure? It would appear to be a sluggish importer demand and buyer activity, uh, along with really consistent uh, good supply. Uh, we saw 1.8 million bales offered in the 2022 sorry, 22-23 season, this was less than 1% increase on 21-22 season. So a really stable amount of wool coming through the system now. And when we look at that year in review, the 22-23 season, that's just behind us. Uh, we can look at exports, just have a quick look at where our wool went. Um, as per usual, around 80% went to China. This has been a long-term trend now. Um, but the last year saw a good increase, 37% uh, increase, in fact, to wool shipments to India. Uh, so this is coming off a really low base, um, but it's taking now 7% of our wool, and any market diversification is, of course, a welcome addition to the wool industry. So the biggest unknown going forward into the spring is um, likely going to be that Chinese wool demand. Um, from buyers, both for their domestic consumer in China, but also for their global wool customers. Um, we know that around 50% at least of Australian wool that's processed is actually destined for Chinese domestic consumers. And these early signs now being reported of a slowing Chinese economy certainly carry the possibility that uh, it could impact consumer spending on items such as wool and clothing. Um, our other major end markets largely spread through Europe, North America, where the cost of living pressures and risks of mild recessions in some nations still remain. Um, it also is potentially going to put pressure on those discretionary spending choices such as clothing. And it's feasible that that usual spike in wool demand that we would see in the Northern Hemisphere spring, autumn and winter period uh, may be less than we've seen in previous years. I think it's important to note that wool as a fibre is not alone in its downward price trend. We've seen all major fibre indices across cotton, polyester um, and acrylics following a really similar pattern of a slow price reduction over the period from around late 22 through um, to the end of winter this year. Importantly, I think in the current global economic settings, wool remains really competitively priced. Uh, against these other fibres. And as much as we want to differentiate the product to generate market access and continued uh, consumer demand, at least for now, wool uh, is maintaining as, a, as an option for consumers when price is a major factor in decision making. So being competitively priced at this point in the economic cycle uh, would appear to be not a bad thing. Moving away from prices and exports, there's some interesting data out recently from MLA following the release of their latest sheet producer intentions survey. Uh, this demonstrates the majority of the Australian ewe flock continues to be merino, about 64%. And the balance of the flock, uh, of course, made up of those first cross and prime lamb ewes. The survey also tells us that New South Wales and Vic account for the majority of the national flock and that our largest producers, and we'll say that those are with uh, more than 3,000 head on hand, are collectively responsible for almost 65% of all breeding sheep. 
So what we can draw from that information is that it's likely to be the decisions of these larger scale producers that are going to greatly influence volumes and types of one-off art in auction rooms over the coming season. Well, thanks for listening to us today, everybody. Thanks so much to our commodity uh, analysts, Michael Whitehead, Alana Barrett, and thank you so much to our senior economist, Adelaide Timbrell. Um, things are still looking pretty solid. I think we're off the top in agri, but we're probably normalising rather than being necessarily worried about too much. Um, Let's see what the spring brings. Hope it's good for you and we look forward to seeing you somewhere out there in the next few months.